Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Sheen and Nicole from Lego. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, yeah. Hey, yeah. Glad to be here. So, uh, obviously, we don't need to introduce uh, everyone to Lego because we all know who Lego is and we all love Lego. Maybe just give us a quick introduction to what you do at Lego and how Lego got onto the journey of doing serverless. Right. So, I make a start. Um, so, my name is Ashin Brussels and I am a senior engineering manager at the Lego group. I've been with Lego for four years now and mainly associated with the serverless operations of uh, lego.com and involved heavily in the migration of uh, lego.com from its uh, monolith onto serverless. So when we talk about the Lego group, we represent the team behind running the lego.com. So there are other groups and teams across Lego doing many things with serverless, different use cases and different development works going on. For us at lego.com, the backend of this site runs on serverless on AWS Cloud. So that's where we are at lego.com and using serverless technologies. Uh, Nicole? Sure. Um, I'm Nicole Yip and I'm a senior infrastructure engineer at the Lego group. So like Sheen said, we're working on the shop part of lego.com. Um, I've only been in the team for about 10 months now, but yeah, we're in the platform team, which is responsible for the hosting, the, the DevOps and dev tooling, as well as the site reliability and security. So yeah, that's me. Okay, so let's maybe in that case talk about the structure of the team and how the team is divided in terms of responsibilities. So Nicole, you mentioned that you work in the, well, both of you work in the DevOps space. So do you have like a centralized team that you guys look after all of the infrastructure, the deployment, as well as the on-core for the feature teams? Yes, so we have six feature teams or feature squads and then the platform squad, which is where I work. The platform squad is the one that looks after all of the dev tooling, the DevOps infrastructure on how both the back and front end is hosted. And then the, the monitoring on call and yeah, alerting of the site. So in that case, uh, does your developers have access to AWS accounts themselves or does everything have to go through your team? So we have three different AWS accounts for our different environments. The one that the developers have the most access to is the one we call Playground. And it's the one where they can deploy the services that they're working on. They can test them out in an, in an AWS account and see how it's going to be deployed. When that service is ready to go to production, they merge their PRs. It gets automatically deployed through our deployment pipelines into the development and acceptance AWS account. And this account, they have more restricted permissions where they can't just deploy anything. They can have a look at how it's configured. They can access it from the front end to, to make sure it's working as expected and, and generally shake out the service. And then once that's all ready, we have the QA team and my team that coordinate releases into production. And this is, it's also automated. We simply click a button. And so even we don't do any manual deployments into the production AWS account. But here, um, the developers have little or no access, at least to the AWS account. They can still go through the front end to, to make sure that their services are responding as expected. So I've worked with quite a lot of companies, well, I guess large companies or enterprises that have got a similar model where developers have no access to their AWS accounts beyond what you would call dev or playground environments. And this is often a hindrance to actually addressing problems when something happens in production because the developers are the ones that understand the system the best, but they have no easy way to actually go into the environment and see if something is wrong and if the monitoring setup is not sufficient for the problem they're dealing with, then it adds a lot of time to the meantime to recovery. Is that something that you guys have experienced at all? It is, yes. And we've been actively working on it quite recently to ease this. One of the things that we've done very recently is overhauled the AWS roles that we can assume in each AWS account. One of them is called the viewer role, and we've now allowed or gone through the, the auditing process of looking at all the services that we use, getting the IAM actions that are required for a minimum interaction from the AWS console. And so we've built up this policy for a viewer role where we can now give developers access to our production account 
and know that they can't do anything destructive. They also can't view anything that's secret or confidential, but they can have a look at how their service has been deployed. They can look at the logs and they can see if anything has gone wrong from that perspective. So we now don't have that barrier of, oh no, we can't just give all developers access to production. We actually overhauled that process. And the other benefit is that we use New Relic to pull out insights from our AWS accounts. And so developers can log into New Relic and view all of their metrics, all of the dashboards and errors that are coming from their functions. And so they're not limited from viewing all of that just because they don't have access to the AWS account. It's quite useful that we can build up these dashboards for them to, to have a very quick view of how is this service performing? How is this part of the site performing? And so, yeah, we use them quite a bit. Okay, that sounds uh, pretty good because that is, uh, yeah, like I mentioned, that is a common problem people run into. And I guess the other thing that you're probably going to need uh, eventually is some kind of a break glass ceiling so that if some emergency happens and someone needs to go and change something quickly just so that you can recover the site or some kind of business critical functions, oftentimes there's a need for some kind of a break glass procedure that allows someone to get right access to, say, the production environment, but then everything they do is audited do you guys have anything like that planned in your pipeline? So the same time that we were auditing our IAM roles, we had a look at this dynamic escalation into the admin role if required and using MFA to protect that and things like that. But for our setup within Lego, it, it wasn't that feasible. The way that we are operating and have operated before is that we have always have two engineers on call at a time, 24-7. One of them is from the platform team and the other is an application engineer. And both of the infrastructure engineers that are on call have administrative privileges to most of the accounts and the, the sites that we use. So if anything, the, the break glass procedure is to, to contact the infrastructure engineer that's on call. And so we make ourselves available in that case. Okay. So in this case, uh, how many application teams do you have? We've got six squads um, and we've we keep reorganizing them. I think they've been reorganized about three or four times since I joined. But at the moment, they're organized in end-to-end -end squads based on the parts of the site that we operate. So we have one squad for checkout that's purely responsible end-to-end -end for the front end of the checkout process all the way through to the back end um, integration with our SAP implementation. We have another team that's based on exploration of the site. And again, they're full stack. They own and operate the navigation around the site, the display of various products and the different landing pages that we have all the way through to the back end of talking to our content providers and all of that. We have some other squads for other projects that we have in flight as well. Oh, and I mustn't forget the, the VIP squad who are working with our third party for the, the rewards site that we have. Just to add to what Nicole was saying about the squads and the setup, another thing that we practice is that we try to bring in the squads, the engineers, as part of the entire journey. So when a new feature is uh, about to be developed, so obviously someone will come up with the original architectural design and that will be reviewed and discussed with the engineers irrespective of their the level of serverless or aws knowledge and skill set but everyone will be involved and then they slowly kind of bring up the the development and before it goes to production we now have a kind of a checklist which also includes the aws serverless lens checklist as well so that also we sit together uh, we means uh, myself or someone else uh, responsible for the architecture along with uh, Nicole's squad and their feature squad. So we will go through the different things and uh, make sure they understand and also make sure that the right things like the alerts and alarms and monitoring, every those kind of things in place before we take it further. So that makes Nicole's or her uh, team's job a bit easier because engineers now have a full understanding of the expectations and you know what to do in case of emergency or uh, after live situations so that's quite a sensible and quite a common approach i've seen in companies like the zone we have very similar thing as well where you have uh, some kind of onboarding process but then a almost a well architectural review before you actually go live to make sure that the teams understand the threshold they need in order to go through their final barrier to be running in production but once in production, 
Did you say that uh, there's one application developer on call the whole time, 24-7? Is that one for all six teams or is that one per team? So that's one for all of the teams. And the idea is that this engineer has a fairly wide-ranging view of the whole site and which engineers know the most about different parts of the system so that if something goes wrong, they're responsible for escalating to the right people and involving as few people as possible, especially if it's out of hours. So yeah, both on-call engineers are mostly there to say, hey, you need to be aware and be the first responders to any alerts, but also know who has the most knowledge on each part of the site so that they can be involved fairly quickly if it's something out of your realm. And how do you make sure that you've got enough people with this wider knowledge about who is responsible for different parts of the system so that you've got enough people on rotation for this on-call rotor? Because again, the more teams you have working on something, then the harder it is for any one person to know who to even talk to about a particular problem happening in a particular, say, microservice. Yeah, so the benefit for us is that we have a structure where we have senior engineers and engineering managers and senior engineering managers in Sheen's case. And so it's these people at, at that level where they have the awareness of how everything fits together within the site. And they've been in the team for way longer than I've been a part of it. I think, Sheen, you've been here four years now, I think you said. So yeah, we have at least three of those engineers who have been through the entire uplift and development and our move into serverless so they have at least peripheral knowledge of oh yeah that that team worked on that service a while ago so they're the ones who i can talk to if i need more context their general remit is to be across all the new things that are going into the system and any historical alerts that we've had so that we can build up that knowledge as well yeah so another point to add is that these on-call engineers not necessarily going to fix the problem so they probably will bring in other engineers, like uh, Nicole was saying, who uh, is familiar with that part of the system or that feature, then they can be brought on board in order to find a solution to a problem. The other aspect of, um, so an engineer having the overall view or understanding on everything, so that's quite impossible. So, so we slowly encourage uh, engineers to be on board in this uh, on-call process, but uh, not necessarily they will be fully in charge of the day-to-day on-call duties, but they can shadow a senior engineer to learn it and then slowly grow up and, uh, you know, uh, self-sufficient to be part of the uh, rota. Yeah, those guys who have long institution knowledge about how the company operates, how the different teams break up, they are super valuable, especially in this kind of on-call situation and dealing with uh, fire uh, when they actually happen. So I've got a question along similar line in that case. Have you guys operated in this sort of setup for a long time? It is something that's kind of new that came into place when you guys moved to serverless. It's been in place since we moved to serverless, I believe. That's when we became more in control of the infrastructure and the yeah, the end-to-end -end of our site. And so we could then effectively be on call and have a lot more within our control to fix. We are in the process of improving this process, as Sheen was alluding to, of figuring out how to bring in new engineers and not have them too intimidated by having to know every single thing about the entire site. It's an involving process and we've been operating in, in this way for over a year now. Um, so we did have similar setup in the past when we had the monolith legacy platform in place, but those days is mainly the infrastructure engineers specifically looking after the operation of the site. And when, when something goes wrong, they will then initiate a call to another engineer or something like that. But the difference now is that more engineers are part of the, the entire process. So that sort of the transition happened uh, mainly due to the move to serverless and cloud. And along the journey of going to the, the cloud and to serverless, what are some of the biggest technical and cultural changes that has had to happen for this process to work? Uh, so cultural changes, yes. And uh, the main cultural shift you need is the mindset or the willingness to adopt serverless and to learn and to do something. So for us, that wasn't an issue because we started off with a, a small team, fresh of ideas, 
uh, moving it to serverless wasn't an issue. But then the struggle was how do we bring uh, new engineers with uh, less or no AWS and serverless skills onto the team. So that was a challenge. So there isn't a clear-cut solution. So one way to look at it is that, uh, you know, obviously you bring in new engineers and slowly feed them the knowledge they need, encourage them to be part of meetup talks or online webinars and uh, making them go through AWS certification process and uh, those sort of learnings that will slowly enhance them to come up to the level. So in terms of technical challenges, typically when you move from a different environment, say for example, if the legacy platform heavily utilized a SQL database, for example. So when you move to serverless and you start dealing with the NoSQL, so and obviously there is a kind of a cultural difference between these two. Same is true when we talk about programming language and uh, the different technologies and things. So one thing I often say during my talks is the sort of the mind shift to see things differently. So here, when we have an engineer, that engineer is not just doing a programming. So that engineer, even if it's a small feature, can come up with a dozen or so AWS services that needs to be put in place in order to deliver that particular serverless service feature. So that is the difference. As long as the team can convey that message in an understandable way and encourage them to be part of the whole movement of serverless, then it can become a bit easier. First of all, you need to have the willingness to learn and uh, uh, adopt serverless. So once you cross that barrier, then can be become easier as long as you guide them or coach the engineers to come up to the, the required level. And what are some of the things that you are doing to actively coach people and to train them so that they have an easier time switching over to a new set of paradigms in terms of how they develop software, in terms of the databases they're using, but also in terms of new languages? Because sounds like there's quite a lot of different tech stack change that's all happening at the same time. Yeah, so I'll start on that and probably Nicole can fill in the remaining. As I mentioned, there is no clear-cut solution. So one thing we do is a full-stack squad setup. Certain engineers who are new may be initially doing all the front-end work, JavaScript work. But then the squad picks up a new feature that involves front-end as well as serverless service developments. Those new engineers, they won't be heavily involved with uh, serverless service development, but they will pair with someone who is doing the service development or they pick up tickets, they just touch the boundaries of the, you know, the, the service. So that will become sort of a stepping stone for them. So then they, as they become part of the whole journey, part of all the discussions and things that I, I talked about earlier, that slowly enriches their knowledge. So that's one way of bringing them. And then Nicole, she's heavily involved in um, uh, getting engineers up the skills with the certification things. Nicole, you can elaborate on the thread that we run. Yeah, so we have a, a Teams channel discussing entirely around AWS certifications and actively encouraging our engineers to study towards at least the cloud practitioner and then beyond if, if there is that interest. We're actively posting resources and results and summarizing to each other any, any new references that we've found helpful. And I think one of our engineers attended the, uh, the AWS online conference, awesome conference. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but yeah, one of our engineers attended that and was sending back interesting things that she had learned there that the other engineers at the same level could then share. And going to Sheen's point, we actively, well, we're teaching by immersion, essentially. So all of the, the architecture is done in this AWS language using the AWS icons so that when engineers pick up new features, they see these diagrams with all of the services names in AWS's language. And so they sort of learn by association that way as well. So we're surrounding, surrounding our teams with the AWS terminology and pairing as well within the squad. So we're just presenting as many opportunities as we can to be involved in anything AWS related. I'll give you two examples, uh, Jan. So uh, engineer from our uh, team attending your uh, serverless course, 
that's one way of uh, how we encourage engineers to take opportunities and learn right the other thing is like uh, when event bridge was announced so i wanted someone to do a simple poc with an idea i had i didn't choose uh, an engineer with the uh, top of the serverless skills i went to an engineer she was just starting up on serverless so i said to her explain to her okay so this is a new service this is how it works and this is what i'm expecting to have as part of the poc and she had to learn and she had to learn and struggle and come up with something so that works and she can show it to others so this is sort of the examples that i can put forward where we encourage engineers to become skillful in this uh, cloud and serverless space yeah so those combination of different things has worked quite well in quite a few of the companies that I've worked with and I love the phrase you use there the learn by immersion that's definitely the best way to do it and uh, I love the fact that you went to someone who doesn't have that much experience with AWS and give her an opportunity to actively go and experiment and try something out which I find again is where you learn the most and sounds like some of the other things you guys are doing in terms of encouraging people, I guess that means that you give them budget and the time off to study and to take the certification exams. Yes, certainly. We have um, a budget for all of our engineers to attend conferences, to, yeah, to, as you said, take the exams, take study leave. It's all self-driven. So we encourage each of our engineers to actively use up this budget, ask your engineering managers for budget to study for exams, to subscribe to various courses and all of that. And also we encourage them to share with the community as well. So we encourage them to write blog posts and we encourage them to talk at conferences or meetups or even at the Lego Hub in London, we conduct uh, meetups. So that's an opportunity for them to come up and talk about something they learned. And also quite a few engineers are taking part in code camp and various different coaching opportunities where they share the cloud and programming and other skills with the wider community as well. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing more and more people from Lego popping up in the community in terms of speaking at conferences, in terms of a webinar and blog posts and all of that. And thank you guys so much for giving back to the community. I think it's great that you're giving people the time off. Quite a few of the companies I've worked with in the past where they do have a budget, but they find that, that no one takes out the budget because you don't give people the time off to actually use this budget. So people have to invest their own time, their own holidays in order to go to conferences and things like that, which just doesn't have the right incentivization in terms of encouraging you to go and learn, which ultimately benefits a company a great deal, having people that are more knowledgeable and can make the right decisions. This episode of Real World Serverless is sponsored by Dynobase, which is by far the most intuitive UI tool I've used for DynamoDB. Anyone who's building serverless applications on AWS today is no doubt using DynamoDB in some capacity, and is easily one of my favorite services in AWS. However, even for a seasoned user like myself, I still run into usability issues with the DynamoDB console all the time. And personally, I find DynamoBase to be leaps and bounds better than the AWS console and makes it really easy for me to manage DynamoDB tables in a multi-region, multi-account environment. It's definitely made my life a lot easier. And if like me, you want something better than the DynamoDB console, then go to dynobase.dev and start a free trial. Now, let's continue with the episode. So we've talked a lot about some of the things you guys are doing at the organization level to ease this transition to serverless. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about some of the actual technical things you guys are doing in terms of how you organize your repos. Uh, we did a webinar recently, not webinar, I guess we did a virtual meetup recently, me and Nicole. So you talked about how you guys are using modern repo. But your approach to modern repo is quite different to a lot of other companies who are doing modern repo where they have a single CI CD pipeline that deploys every time anything changes. So can you talk us through how modern repo works at Lego? Sure. So we have, like I said in the talk, we have two mono repos, one for our front end, which is Fargate services that mostly serve up the, the front end. So our app shop and app checkout. Um, we also have another mono repo that has all of our serverless services where we use the serverless framework to define each of these packages that provide a, a collective service. In terms of 
how we do our mono repo differently, we implemented something called uh, that we call a selector script. So we use Learner to detect whenever an engineer raises a PR to any part of the mono repo, the selector script is triggered to detect which package or which of the packages have been changed or affected by that new code change. And we then only run the integration tests for those services that have been affected. So this makes the deployment process a lot more efficient. We're not redeploying code that hasn't changed. And we also use the same selector script when we merge into our main trunk or the develop branch that we is what we call it. And so this triggers the deployment into the development environment or QA environment that we call it internally. And so only the services that have been impacted by this change, either because you've changed a dependency or you've changed the actual service, only those services are deployed. We don't deploy everything all the time, which is what we did at the start. And that was fine when we had, you know, one, two, ten services. Now we're up to about 40. And so it's good that we've been able to limit the amount of changes that happen when a single PR is merged. Yeah, I think that bit when it comes to detecting changes to shared code, that's where often it gets complicated. And that's why people tend to deploy everything all the time. Because even though I haven't touched my service, something that we depend on, some shared business logic code somewhere, could have changed or we end up having to just be safe and deploy everything all the time. But I think this idea of using Learner to detect those changes uh, is, is quite clever. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us during the meetup. And I will definitely put the link for anyone who wants to hear Nicole's uh, full session at the Serverless London meetup last month. Uh, you can find that in the show notes. Um, and I also want to talk about on the language. Shin, you mentioned that you guys also had to change the language that you use to write your services. And sounds like now everything is in either Node.js or in TypeScript. What did you switch from? So the legacy platform is Java. And luckily for us at that time, the front end was in JavaScript. So when we moved to serverless, there was this dilemma, which language choice to go for, whether to go for Golang or Node or Java. So we slowly kind of filtered out the odd ones and ended up with the JavaScript or Node or Go. Now, looking at the skills that we already had at that time, it was kind of a no-brainer, stick with what we have. So that's how we went with the Node.js, and that really paid off so that we didn't have to bring in new skills in or uh, struggle to teach on a language aspect where standardizing on the programming language part gave us the time or the freedom to equip everyone on the cloud technology and that sort of things. So we have Node.js, TypeScript, I think also a bit of Next.js as well. So that's the setup we have. So we've, uh, I guess, with the, the Lego shopping site, uh, you must get quite a lot of traffic, probably quite spiky traffic as well, I imagine, around holiday seasons, uh, people buying gifts. Are you guys doing anything different, anything that goes against conventional recommendations in order to improve, I guess, the cold start time for your functions or maybe to make sure that you hit some of those uh, latency or scalability requirements? I don't think we're doing anything outside of the norm. One thing that we've been trying to optimize recently is our New Relic agent. So we used to include it as a dependency for each of our services so that we could get the information back over to our New Relic account. So we've been experimenting recently with adding it as a layer. And we've spent the last, I think it was two months, working very closely with New Relic to try and get this implementation as performant as possible because we were observing quite an impact to our cold start times and our Lambda operation because of the size of the layer. I think in the end, it, it wasn't just the size of the layer, but there were some libraries that we were using. So we were we are using Webpack and we were also using Tursa as a plugin to Webpack to significantly reduce the size of our Lambda functions. But there were some issues there with, I think it was with the Tursa plugin and, and the whole that whole combination was resulting in our Lambda functions taking six seconds or plus to cold start. And so once one of our engineers spent two months of his life trying to debug all of these <laughs> the, these issues of errors happening in like a, a networking context, we've now got it being fairly performant and we're not 
having significantly huge start times and now we can have this new relic layer that's implemented across all of our functions to give us some nice distributed tracing. But yeah, the, we have had quite a bit of spiky traffic in the past and there are some limitations that we have run into and it's been fairly reactive on our end. Like one thing that we ran into was the SSM parameter store rate limit. So by default, you get, I think it's 40 transactions per second to parameter store. And in the past, that hadn't been a problem. But then we released a, a set for the Friends TV show and we had such a big reaction. I think Jennifer Aniston, she, she posted on Instagram around the same time and we had a massive spike in traffic. And we started hitting these parameter store rate limits. We were getting throttled and we weren't able to scale up the lambdas fast enough. And so we, we realized, oh, there's a standard throughput and an advanced throughput. And so we quickly opted into the, the higher throughput, which thankfully was a click of the button on the console um, and not an AWS service request. But yeah, that, that was just one of the examples of limits that we've run into on AWS with our new traffic models that we're still learning about. Yeah, that limit also just wasn't documented anywhere. Quite a few of us ran into it just because we happened to have a traffic spike and then we realized, wait a minute, why is this thing just suddenly getting throttled? Because they don't publicize that rate limit at all until, I think maybe until now, now that they've got the paid tier that you can get up to a thousand ops a second. That limit, that was so sneaky. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to find it before this recording as well. And you search for standard throughput SSM and nothing comes up. <laughs> I had to go over to the service quotas for the specific API calls to find the 40 number. <laughs> and that uh, service quota also is relatively new before we just had to hammer the API call until we hit that roughly number. So we kind of guessed, okay, it's about 40 because that's when we started getting throttle exceptions back. So you mentioned something there I wanted to go into uh, right, the whole Webpack and layers. Once you introduce layers, then you can't use Webpack to minify and to tree shake those dependencies that you're injecting through layers anymore. Was that where you start to see your functions getting blown up in terms of size and having an impact on performance? No, so it was a learning exercise for us because obviously we started out with Lambda functions with engineers who had switched over to, to AWS from a Java background or a front-end background um, if they were, you know, from, from JavaScript. And so they, we brought across this Webpack and minification from the front-end world, essentially, where it's, it's fairly standard to, you know, when your code's going out for production, you minify it so that it's the smallest size possible. And when you come across to AWS and you're talking about lambdas that, and they talk about cold starts and package sizes, that all makes sense to bring it across. And so now that as we were going through that exercise of switching over from New Relic from a dependency to a layer, we started observing all of the performance issues and it uncovered that having Tursa and I believe there was some specific syntax that it was struggling with. It was something to do with how we were making HTTP calls with X, no, just making HTTP calls. It was ignoring timeouts and it was taking... It was using up the entire Lambda context, so slightly unrelated from the, the New Relic layer, but it uncovered this issue. And so by removing the Tursa plugin, removing the minification, it, we got back to a more performance state. And so following on from this investigation, we talked to our AWS account managers and we, were, we posed them the question of, do we still need to be so worried about the size of our Lambda functions? And does that still have a, a significant impact on Lambda cold start time because it used to. And I think I still need to get back to them on the, the actual numbers of how much size is Webpack saving us. And so, yeah, we, we're still in this um, active investigation of should we still be using Webpack or should we, can we drop minification and not see a, a significant impact to performance? And that's kind of where we are now of we don't need to minify and we, we still get the, the same startup times that we were getting before. So I can actually fill in some details here because uh, uh, we've done quite a lot of experimentations around the various different configurations and file size and all of that. So the benefit of Webpack is not actually reducing the file size itself, uh, which has got an impact, but let's go into that later. The benefit of Webpack is removing all the file system calls 
because every time you go require, that means it's a file system I/O op, and uh, every time you have a require some dependency, that dependency might bring in another thousand dependencies. So that's a lot of file ops. So those file ops is what adds to your cold start time. And so Webpack removes all of that, and then you end up with one flat file that contains everything you need, and therefore you have no required that requires a file system op at runtime. And that's where you get all the benefits from Webpack, not the file size itself. The file size itself does have an impact, and this is the kicker, that what we found was that actually that impact only really applies to the first invocation after a code deployment. So Imagine you deploy a new code, then the first container that got boot up, and the size of your artifact has a pretty big impact. And we're talking about potentially hundreds of milliseconds for that first container. But afterwards, new containers that get boot up, the file size almost has no impact. It has no statistically significant impact on your code start time. So that means that if you were to change the environment variables or change some configurations, then you will see that the file size has no bearing on the cold start time itself. Another thing we found was that during cold starts, you get a full CPU power regardless of the memory setting you use for your functions. So you will cold start just as fast on 128 meg as you would do on, say, I don't know, one gig or three gig of memory. Some really interesting details there in terms of uh, how the package size affects your cold start time. But I guess the main thing is that Webpack would still have a big benefit just because it removes all the file system ops at runtime. Yes, no, that makes sense. So yeah, well, I guess we'll likely be keeping Webpack in um, and then likely removing or discussing more about whether we keep the Tursa plugin or not. Yeah, there's also some tricky aspects to measuring the cold start as well. Lambda tells you the init duration, which is the time it takes to initialize the module itself. But for the time it takes to download the file, the artifact, which impacts only the first container that get pulled up after a code change, that is not included in the init duration. And you have to have something outside of the invocation itself. So maybe if you're using API Gateway to talk to Lambda, then you can look at the integration latency to see the actual end-to-end -end invocation time for that function. And that's kind of one of the more reliable way to measure cold start time. So depending on the metric you look at, you may not be measuring the right thing. Oh, man, I spent so much of my time just like trying to experiment different <laughs> things. And uh, Michael Hart from Abaso, we had a, a really interesting conversation around this. He was the one that actually did some of this experimentation around the file size and impact on CoStar and the fact that it only affects the first one. That was the, something that he found after a bunch of experiments he did. But yeah, it's uh, fun stuff, but uh, stuff I'd rather I didn't have to do. <laughs> uh, what about things like... Uh, number of users you serve uh, per month? Hmm, I don't know that number off the top of my head, but the main number we look at is the number of concurrent sessions on the site, as that is the main measure of stress on our backend infrastructure. Um, I know that during normal site operation, a low number of concurrent sessions is around 200, 250. Um, and that's normally when our larger markets are asleep. And this usually increases by about three times when they've woken up again and, and are on the site. Um, when we head into Black Friday and first of the month product launch scenarios, the highest we've actually seen was over 20 times that baseline. And that's always a little bit scary from an infrastructure perspective, but very impressive when it holds. Yeah. That's one of the benefits of Lambda, right? It just scales and uh, handles all of that for you so you don't have to be on the edge of your seat all the time. So I guess uh, you talked about in terms of the benefit of serverless, the scaling, but also the fact that it allows your teams to have more control of your AWS environment, having more control end-to-end -end of your application. What about in terms of business benefits? Has there been anything that you can measure in terms of uh, velocity or feature development or maybe even cost for your AWS accounts? Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I can't talk about cost, but uh, for me, uh, serverless journey is more than cost. So I often talk about this um, serverless acceleration. That is quite visible in our case. So since we moved to serverless, you can clearly see the benefits it brings in terms of the speed with which a new feature can be brought to production. So this has changed from months 
in the past to now days or a sprint or weeks. So that to me is a real benefit so that, you know, the stakeholders or POs can come to us and asking for a new feature to go to production. And we have now the, you know, the sort of the tools and the services that gives us the confidence to quickly take that to production. That to me is a real, real benefit. And the other things that we talked about is the other thing about the, the team culture and how the team accelerates or evolves around the technology. So that way, it's been really beneficial for us at uh, lego.com. And uh, so that's the reason why I say that, of course, uh, we do look at the cost side of things as well. But to me, what serverless brings is beyond the cost benefits and the other sort of the cliche things that we often often talk about. I totally agree. And I think in terms of the actual savings that servers give you in terms of your total cost of ownership, the AWS cost is just a very, very small part. The fact that you can get so much more done with the same engineers means that you save so much in terms of the engineering cost itself for your application, but also market opportunity costs as well, that you can be, you can hit the market a lot quicker. You can get there before your competitors. You can out-innovate your competitors in terms of bringing out new ideas and new products and new features to the market. Yeah, exactly. So I'm just going to give a quick example of something that happened recently. So PO wanted to experiment with a different uh, search weighting algorithm. So we already have something in place. The idea was brought up and was a quick uh, architectural design and uh, detailing, talk to the team, and so simple because it's all just enriching an event that we already sent to EventBridge and take that to a different consumer and set up a few you know, Dynamo tables and a couple of lambdas on top to bring up that new value as per the new logic. So that can now go into production with the, you know, the NB scenario where uh, the, the business can evaluate which one is effective in which market. So this is just a quick example of how quickly we can bring value to the business with serverless. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the event bridge there. I bet we could have spent the whole hour just talking about event bridge. Yeah. But I know you've done quite a lot of talks already, including with Jeremy Daly. So I'm going to include some links to your previous talks on event bridge and microservices, communication patterns, as well as your chat with Jeremy Daly, so that uh, if any listeners want to find out a bit more about event bridge and how Lego is using event bridge, you can find out from there. So Nicole, switching back to you, you mentioned earlier that one of the pain points you guys ran into was with the low throughput limits with SSM parameter store. Are there any other sort of platform limitations or other pain points that are hurting you and your teams? So in terms of AWS and Lambdas, one pain point that we are still facing is the end-to-end -end testing. So I mentioned that we have a playground AWS account that allows our developers to deploy their function into an AWS environment and actually test it out in a like-for-like -like context. What we don't have at the moment is a fully connected end-to-end -end environment that has a front-end instance for them to connect their deployment into so that they can have a front-end that they can invoke their service that they've just changed to, to ensure that the changes are actually what they are intended to do. So that's one thing that I've put in as a, a future roadmap item in terms of a, a connected feature environment rather than just my Lambda in isolation. Another thing that we've run into is the lack of tracing that we have through the stack. Um, and so that's what we're actively working on now with New Relic to implement their distributed tracing so that we can track a request from the front end in, in someone's client. So in if you load up the shop in your browser, we can have that request ID come through into New Relic and we can trace that you hit our, our backend layers and which services did you actually invoke through that and any errors that you encountered along the way. So that's what we're actively implementing now, but it, it is a, a point of complexity when you go into lambdas and, and all of the microservices type architectures. 
Have you guys uh, checked out that the Zone Lambda Power Tools, uh, it implements a lot of this sort of collation ID based uh, tracing for API Gateway, Lambda, Event Bridge, a whole bunch of different services. And I guess uh, the the tracing you are implementing now for New Relic, is that mostly for API to API as well from the client to API? We had a look at many different services that provided distributed tracing and tracing for Lambdas and AWS. And we went with New Relic because we already have an existing relationship with them. And so when they were bringing out this new feature, we it was the easiest one that we could pivot to and, and implement because we were already using their agent. And so it was simply adding on a, a couple new flags to, to say, yes, pass through, pass through these trace segments. Uh, so the, the tracing that we're getting from New Relic is in the context of their wider application. What is it called? APM application... Performance monitoring. Performance, that's the one. Yeah, application performance monitoring. So it's in that entire context of the information that they're already bringing through. So yeah, we, we do get the those trace segments of all of the services that we call, whether they're internal or third parties. And I think a lot of the problem I've had with uh, I guess, uh, APM solutions from a lot of these traditional vendors is that they cater for the sort of API to API tracing really well and they give you a lot of uh, details around uh, oh, which line of code that took how long and all of that uh, but the moment it goes over asynchronous sources like EventBridge the whole thing just breaks because again they don't have really good way to cater for those kind of workloads have you guys been testing it with EventBridge and all the different background processing that you are doing? No we haven't broken it out into to testing out EventBridge yet but I think we are tracing through like API Gateway, so I guess that is a synchronous call. I don't think we we haven't, I guess, considered it as a use case that we need to trace the asynchronous calls, the background processing that happens and tie that to a user's request because it's, I guess by definition, it's asynchronous. So the main use case that we're trying to solve is how many of our users on the site currently are encountering errors that are being caused by specific services as they're the ones that are more high priority to fix right now. And then we have alerting through various AWS metrics on how are our background processes working as we expect? Are any of them lagging behind and, and all of that? So we, we kind of break out of that distributed tracing model for those asynchronous background processes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. What I found is that with a lot of clients, uh, the user-facing aspect is just as a part of the story because a lot of the processing actually happens in the background. And uh, when something doesn't happen, so that, I don't know, a customer places an order and there's no confirmation email and then they're trying to figure out what happened because some of that process, some of the order flow involves asynchronous uh, bits of things happening in the background through event bridge or some kind of a queue. So that's where you have the challenge of having to debug those asynchronous invocations as part of your end-to-end -end flow for your customer-facing features. Again, that entirely depends on how your system is put together and what it is that you're trying to build. Um, so we're actually coming up to the hour mark. And before we go, I want to just get maybe some AWS wish list items from you guys based on your experience with AWS and serverless so far. Anything that you would like AWS to fix or improve? I think Sheen has one on EventBridge. <laughs> yeah, so we talked about EventBridge. I mean, we do use EventBridge in uh, asynchronous decoupled uh, situations, but this particular point I'm going to say is kind of a blocker in many cases, is the event persistence. So often I get challenged saying that, okay, what if the event is lost? Okay, so I don't have an answer for that. That would be something nice to have in place so that uh, people will uh, get confidence that uh, they can send an event and there is a guaranteed uh, store that they can be pre-played. And, uh, and also, uh, I would love to see uh, the DLQ option available to certain targets, similar to what they introduced to SNS. And the other one, I think it's a long wish list for many for a long time is the serverless elastic cache option so that would really help you know i know we have DynamoDB, but uh, the elastic cache would really a uh, cool thing to have and one other thing which now that we have a number of standard common patterns with serverless 
it will be really useful going forward if AWS can wrap those as packaged service solutions so that we don't need to wire up a Lambda with a trigger and this and that. So those sort of standard patterns can become readily available out of the box. So yeah, so that will do for now. That's a pretty sweet list. Uh, and for the Eventbridge side of things, uh, I also like for them to add the support for more granular IEM permissions for Eventbridge, which I think right now when you do put events, uh, you can only use a star as your resources, which is not great. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't make you feel very nice. <laughs> yeah, and I'd love to have uh, some kind of a serverless uh, Redis as well. Redis is great. There's so many use cases you can do with Redis, but you have to run a cluster, you have to run inside VPCs and all of that. Yeah, that'd be amazing. And uh, serverless Elasticsearch, that'd be awesome as well. <laughs> okay, so again, thank you guys uh, so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Just one very last thing. How can people find you guys on the internet and uh, is Lego hiring? Well, I guess in terms of finding me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm pelicanpi88, um, an old Twitter handle that I made when I was a little younger. <laughs> And then, yes, we have a, a Lego Medium publication, I believe it's called, um, where we are posting up our blogs every, every now and then, and we're actively encouraging new, new writers into, into publishing articles on there. Um, in terms of hiring, we initially planned on doubling the size of our team this year. Unfortunately, with the, the current situation, we've pushed back on the hiring activities, and so we'll have to check back in on us maybe later in the year. And uh, I'm available on Twitter, Sheen Brussels. And also I write often, uh, publish uh, blogs onto the uh, Lego Engineering Medium channel. Cool. And I'll make sure that those are included in the show notes so that everyone can go and find them, including a link to the careers page on Lego so that when you guys do start hiring again, people can go and find out about opportunities at Lego to work on serverless stuff. And so again, thank you guys so much for the time and stay safe. Hopefully see you guys in person or virtually soon. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, catch up later. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes and the transcript, please go to realworldservice.com. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Shin Brissos and Nicole Yip from Lego. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye.